it, Red Arms. Give it your all. We'll drink the wine till the cup is dry and kiss the girls on down the cry and toss the dice until we fly and dance with Jack of the Shadows. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Tales of Red Arm. I'm your host, Justin, and this is Chapter 45, Blade Master. It's a bit of a longer one, um, but it definitely has some excitement into it, which <laughs> I know, I know. It's about time, right? But before I jump into it, cover a little bit of uh, the end of Chapter 44, was basically Rand and company waiting to hear back from some of the scouts and whatnot and the pre preparation to go into Falma and see what they can find. So now in chapter 45, we're actually starting from, I believe it's Nynaeve's perspective. If I remember correctly. And essentially... There's a lot of descriptions and doesn't really matter a whole lot to like anything in particular to the story story. It's good. So go read it. Um, but it, it, I can be here all day putting in this conversation. It's like, Hey, this is what happens. This is what happens. This is what happens. And it's just description, description, description. But essentially the gist of at least this first part is Min, Elaine, and Nynaeve are kind of laying about, I guess, <laughs> kind of like delinquents or something, hanging out in front of a door and a street and whatnot, off the main street, but on the side street. And they are noticing the Soldam and Damane coming down, they're coming towards them down from the street. And the Soldam is a yellow haired woman wearing a bracelet and a dark woman wearing the collar and they're both kind of yawning. Um, the fall men are ignoring them and averting their eyes and giving them a lot of space. And pretty much there's no sign anywhere of any other Sean Shan out and about. Like they're kind of just the only ones that seem near in the area. And, She pretty much, she being naive, is just checking around, but uh, she didn't turn her head the other direction or anything, but Min tosses one of her half-eaten plums aside, glances up the street casually, and you know leans against the doorpost, again, kind of like delinquents. And uh, it's clear over there where she would put her hands on her knees, because, you know, they had to, like, really overdo this, which, ironically, tuck this away for later, someone else overdoes this stuff, too, later on in the series, and it's hilarious. Um, but Min starts to rub her hands nervously, and Nynaeve's, like, really realizing that Elaine's bouncing on her toes. And Nynaeve's like, oh, if they give us away, I'm gonna bump their heads. But, you know, pretty much if they get found, the Sean Chen have will say what happens to them. But she's like, oh, I don't know if this plan's going to work or not, but it could be her own failure that gives all three of them away. But in the end of it, it's just, we're going to, we're going to do this and I'm going to pull all the attention to me and let Min and Elaine escape. You know, they have to be able to, or she tells them to run if they think anything was wrong and let them think that she would run as well. But well, she's not sure what she would do, but it's like, oh, well, anything except to take me alive, I suppose. So the Soldom and Damani are coming up the street, and, of course, the Fallmen in the early light of the hours of the morning or whatever, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, they are, you know, given a wide berth and whatnot, and people, I guess, are prepping for the market or trying to sell their wares. But Nynaeve pulls in all of her anger, leashed ones and leash holders, you know, all these filthy collars and they put one on Egwene's neck and they'd try to put one on her and Elaine if they could. And she had made men tell her how Soldom enforced their will, which typically 
training abuse, violence, and stuff like that. And she's sure that men keep some back, at least the worst. But she was told enough to heat Nynaeve to white-hot fury. So, in a second, a white blossom on black thorny branch had opened to light Sidar. And the one power fills her. And she knew there was a glow around her, and for those who could see it. The pale-skinned Soldom gives a start, and the dark Damani's mouth fell open, but Nynaeve gave them no chance. It was only a trickle of the power that she channeled, but she cracked it, a whip snapping a dust mote out of the air. The silver collar pops open and clatters to the cobblestone. Nynaeve heaved a sigh of relief as she leaped to her feet. The Soldom just stares at the fallen collar as if a, at a poisonous snake. The Damani put a shaking hand to her throat, but before the woman in lightning Mark Dress had time to move. The Damani turned and punched her in the face. And the Soldom knees buckled and almost fell. <laughs> I gotta say, that was a very exciting moment when we read it the first time. For like pretty much everyone who read it, it's like, oh, that was hilarious. Just like, oh, the color's off. And pow! Right in the face. <laughs> oh, man. So the Soldom knees buckled and pretty much almost falls. And Elaine's like, good for you. And she's running forward to help. And so is men. But before either reached the tomb and the demonic took one startled look around and then just runs as hard as she could. And I'm thinking like, somebody just released you and you just took off running. Like, what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Uh, but Elaine's like, we won't hurt you. We're friends. And Nynaeve's like, shut up. She pulls out some handful of rags from her pocket and just shoves them into the gaping mouth of the still kind of staggering Suldom. And Min hastily takes out a sack of cloth, or a sack and a cloud of dust and plunges it over the Suldom's head, shrouding the woman to the waist. It's like, we're getting, we're, we're attracting too much attention. And yeah, it's like, yeah, people were paying attention, but not completely. Like, they stood in a rapidly emptying street, but the people who had decided to be elsewhere were avoiding look at them. And Nynaeve had been pretty much counting on it. People doing their best to ignore anything that had to do with the Shan-Shan. Gives them a few moments. And they would talk eventually, but in whispers. And it would take hours for the Shan-Shan to learn anything that happened. So, the hooded man, or man, Suldam, woman, um, begins to, like, struggle, you know, trying to, like, muffle, make noise around the rags shoved in her mouth. But Nynaeve and men threw their arms around her and wrestled her a nearby alley, and the leash and collar trail across the cobblestone, just clinking about. And Nynaeve like, tells Elaine, like, pick it up, it won't bite you. And Elaine takes a deep breath, and then gathered the silver metal gingerly. It, she feared it might actually bite her. And Nynaeve felt a little bit of sympathy, but not a whole lot, because, you know, this all this whole plan rested on whether, whether they'd be able to accomplish what they had planned. So the Suldam kicks and tries to throw herself free, but between them, Nynaeve and Min forced her along. And then to go from one alley to another, and then a slightly wider passage behind houses, and to another alley, and at last into a, a rough wooden shed that they had apparently once housed two horses by the stalls. But not many people could afford to keep horses, because when the Shanjan came, it just became unrealistic. And... After a day of Nynaeve's watching, no one had gone near it, and the interior had a musty dustiness that pretty much said it was abandoned completely. And as soon as they get inside, Elaine drops the silver leash and wipes her hands on some straw, because, you know, that's how cleanliness works. Um, but Nynaeve, you know, channels a trickle, and the bracelet falls off, and the, the Soldom squalled and hurled herself about, and Nynaeve's like, ready? So the other two are like, sure. So they yank off the sack, and she wheezed with her blue eyes, teary from dust. But her face is really red, and about as much from anger as from the sack. And she darts to the door, but they caught her before she got her first step. And she's not weak, but there's three of them, and there's one of her. And after they were done, the Soldan was stripped to her shift, lying in one of the stalls, bound hand and foot with a stout cord, with another piece of cord to keep her from forcing the gag out. And Min has kind of a puffy lip. She looks at the lightning paneled dress and some soft boots that are and like, well, it might fit you, Nynaeve, but it won't fit Elaine or me. And Elaine's, you know, pulling straw out of her hair. It's like, yeah, I can, I can tell. 
but you weren't a choice for it anyway. Not really. And they know you too much anyway. So Nynaeve, you know, takes off her own clothes, tosses them aside, and pulls on the Soldom's dress and, and helps with the buttons. So Nynaeve wiggles her toes into the boots, and they're a little tight. And the dress is tight, at least across the bo her bosom. And loose pretty much elsewhere. But the hem hangs almost to the ground, lower than the Soldom wore them. But the fit would have been even worse on the others. So basically, she's a little bit shorter... A little bit more bosom, but a little bit more slender in every other area. Um, which isn't a bad thing necessarily for Nynaeve. But basically she snatches up the bracelet, takes a deep breath, and closes it around her left wrist. The ends merge, and it basically seems solid, but it doesn't feel like anything except the bracelet. And she's like... Man, I'm glad it's not, because if it had felt anything else, it'd been worse. So she tells Elaine to get the dress, and they had a pair of dresses, you know, one of hers and one of Elaine's, to basically the Grey Demone, well, what they wore, like, to make them look like it, and hidden them there. But Elaine didn't move except to stare at the open collar and lick her lips, and it's like, Elaine, you gotta wear it. Too many of them have seen men for her to do it, and... I would have worn it if this dress had fit you instead. But she thought she would have gone mad if she had to wear it. You know, it was why she could not make her voice a bit sharper with Elaine. And Elaine's like, I know, I just wish I knew more what it does to you. And she pulls out her red gold hair out of the way. Um, Min, help me with this. So Min helps with the buttons on her dress. But Nynaeve picks up the silver collar without flinching. And she's like, well, there's one way to find out. And with a bit slight hesitation, she bent and snapped it around the neck of the Suldam. She's like, well, she deserves it, if anything. And she might be able to tell us something useful. But the blue-eyed woman glanced the least trailing from her neck and then just glared up contemptuously. And Min's like, it doesn't work that way. But Nynaeve doesn't even hear. She was aware of the other woman and what she was feeling. And the cord digging in her ankles and her wrists behind her back, the rank fish taste of the rags in her mouth, the straw pressing through her, the thin cloth of her shift. It's not a, like Nynaeve felt these things, but in her head there's a lump of sensations that she knew belonged to the Suldam. Now, this kind of description is something that I thought was interesting because it kind of sounds like the Warder Bond, which... I don't think we've gotten too much into in these these first two books, but later on it becomes more apparent. But essentially, that's how the relationship between an Aes Sedai and a Warder is, where it's an Aes Sedai bonds a Warder, and they have like a bundle of emotions in either of them. So the warder has a bundle of emotions that is the Aes Sedai. The Aes Sedai has a bundle of emotions that is the warder. And they can kind of feel each other, sense each other. They know like where each other, like general direction of each other is. They can technically hide it if they want to, but that's the way it works in terms of like, they can feel them. So if one feels pain, the other one will notice and be aware of it. If the other one feels happiness or ecstasy or something the other one will notice and that's kind of that special thing that they have going for them so it's a very very interesting comparison to the idom there could be some type of theory or whatnot that bases the idom like the, the how it was constructed and whatnot from the original um Aes Sedai that formed it and gave it to Arthur Hawkwing's uh, son. It could have been that she was aware of the water bond, because they don't really mention how far back the water bond goes, but uh, it could have been that there's awareness of the water bond and then utilize that into a Tirangreal. And that's how she made the Idom. But then she added extra things to, like, be able to inflict emotions and feelings of things and whatnot. So it 
it's an interesting concept. It may have no actual weight to it, but it's an interesting concept nonetheless. Um, maybe one day we'll find out a little bit more detail or we'll finally hone in on how it came to be and whatnot. But I like to think that that would be an interesting comparison. But regardless. So Nynaeve kind of is trying to ignore <laughs> these sensations, but they won't go away. But she looks at it, it's like, I'm not going to hurt you if you answer my questions truthfully. We aren't Shan-Chan, but if you lie to me, and then she lifts the leash. The woman kind of sh shakes her shoulders, and she curls in her mouth, what she could with the gag in, to a sneer. So Nynaeve doesn't realize immediately, but a second later, she realizes that the Soldom's laughing. And her mouth kind of tightens. But then she had a thought, and she's like, this bundle of sensations at her head seems to be everything physical that the other one felt. So she tries to add to this. And then the Soldom's eyes bulge out of her head, and she gives a cry that the gag only partially stops. And she tries to fan her hands behind her, trying to ward off something as she humps through the straw in a vain attempt to escape. And then Eve gapes and rids herself of the extra feelings she had added. And the Soldom sagged and weeps. And Elaine's like, uh, what, what did you do to her? And Min just stares with her mouth hanging open, and Nynaeve's like, well, the same thing Sherryom did to you when you threw a cup at Merith. <laughs> She's like, well, this is a filthy thing. And Elaine's like, oh. <laughs> and Min's like, but an IDOM isn't supposed to work that way. They always claimed it only works on any woman who cannot, or it won't work on any woman who cannot channel. And Nynaeve's like, I don't care how it's supposed to work, as long as it does. So Nynaeve takes the silver metal leash right where it joined the collar and pulled the woman up to look at her in the eyes. Frightened eyes, she saw. She's like, you listen to me and listen well. I want answers, and if I don't get them, I'll make you think I've had the hide off of you. So terror rolls across the woman's face, and Nynaeve's stomach heaves as she suddenly realized the soldom had taken her literally. It's like, well, I mean, if you can give that sensation to someone, they probably will pass out or die. But, oh well. Um, it's like, well, if she thinks I can, it's because she knows that is what these leeches are for. So she takes firm hold of herself, and she's like, are you ready to answer me, or do you need more convincing? And the head shaking, <laughs> frantic head shaking, was the answer she needed. So Nynaeve removes the gag, and the woman only swallows once before babbling. I'm not going to report you, I swear. Only take this from my neck. I have gold. Take it. Just, I'll, I'll never tell anyone. And Nynaeve's like, quiet. And the woman just clips her mouth shut. <laughs> He's like, what is your name? Sita. Please, I'll answer you, but please take it off. Anyone sees me, please. And Nynaeve thinks of something, and she's like, I can't make Elaine wear this collar. And Elaine's like, well, we better get on with it. And she's down to her shift. And she's like, give me a moment to put this other dress on. And he's like, eh, put your clothes back on. And Elaine's like, well, someone has to be the Damani. Otherwise, we'll never reach Egwene. The dress fits you and it cannot be men. So that leaves me. She's like, I'm, I told you to put your clothes back on. We already have someone for our leashed one. And she tugs at the leash that holds Sita. And Sita gasps. She's like, no, 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 please. If anyone sees me. And then he just gives her a cold stare. And she just stops. And she's like, well, as far as I'm concerned, you are worse than a murderer. Worse than a dark friend. I can't think of anything worse than you. The fact that I have to wear this thing on my wrist to even be the same as you for even an hour sickens me. So if you think there's anything I'll balk doing to you, think again. You don't want to be seen? Good. Neither do we. No one really looks like a Domani. Or no one really looks at the Domani, though. So as long as you keep your head down the way the leash one is supposed to... No one will even notice you. But you had better do the best you can to make sure the rest of us aren't noticed either. If we are, you surely will be seen. And if that is not enough to hold you, I promise you I'll make you curse the first kiss your mother ever gave your father. Do we understand each other? And she's like, yes, I swear it. So Nynaeve removes the bracelet in order for them to slide Elaine's gray-dyed dress down the leash over Sita's head. It didn't really fit her very well, being loose at the bosom and tied across the hips. But Nynaeve would have been as bad and too short besides. So Nynaeve hopes that people really did not look at Damani. 
She puts the bracelet back on. Elaine, you know, picks up Nynaeve's clothes, wrapped the other dyed dress around them, and made a bundle. A bundle for a woman in farm clothes to be carrying as following Soldam and Damane. So Gawain will eat his heart out when he hears about this, and she laughs, but it kind of sounds like she's forcing it. Nynaeve looks at her closer than at Min, and it's like, now's the dangerous part. It's like, are you guys ready? And Elaine's smile disappears, and she's like, I'm ready. Min's like, ready. I said, where are you, we going? Sita said, quickly adding, if I may ask. And Elaine's like, into the lion's den, Min, to dance with the dark one. And then he's like, what they're trying to say is we're going to where all the demonic are kept, and we intend to free one of them. And Sita just gaping in astonishment when they hustle her out of the shed. And now we kind of like, this is one of those weird parts of the books where it wasn't edited to switch perspectives. It's it's related to the story, but normally when they switch a perspective, they punch in a different paragraph that's separated by a space. This, for whatever reason, was not. But it moves to Bale Doman's uh, particular point of view. And he's, you know, watching the rising sun from the deck of a ship, and, you know, the docks are beginning to bustle, and the streets leading up to the harbor are pretty much empty. And... Yaren, his first, is like, hey, Captain, are you sure about this? If the Shanshan wonder why we're all aboard. And Doma's like, you just make sure there do be an axe near the mooring line. And Yaren, do any man try to cut a line before the women are aboard? I'll split his skull. And it's like, well, Captain, if they don't come, what if it's Shanshan soldiers instead? And it's like, settle your bowels, man. If soldiers come, I will make a run for the harbor mouth and light have mercy on us all. But until soldiers do come, I mean to wait for those women. Now go look as if you know doing anything. So Doman turns, looks up the town and where the Damane are held, and he just drums a nervous tattoo on the railing. Or his fingers drummed a nervous tattoo on the railing. So then it switches again. Because, you know, we're just running through point of views all in one chapter. Like I said, it's a long chapter, and we still got like six pages to go. <laughs> It's a long chapter. But now we're switching to Ran's point of view. And Rand and company are getting really close to Fom because they get that breeze from the sea and whatnot. And they're getting closer and closer as they're walking into Falma. They're not quite in Falma, but they're close to Falma. They're in its, I guess, territory, but not its direct buildings and such. And he's trying to hide the fine silver embroidery in his sleeves and everything um, basically underneath any clothes he could wear. So he's got a moth-eaten cloak uh, kind of covering it because there's not really uh, any clothes that would have worked. But the Shan Shan attitude of, of conquered people carrying weapons not being a big deal probably doesn't extend to those who have Heron Mark swords. So now it's the first shadows of morning stretching out and Hurons riding in among the wagon yards and horse lots. Um, a couple men, you know, moving among lines of merchant wagons and they wore their aprons and wheelwrights blacksmiths, you know. It's the town getting ready to wake up in the morning. Ingtar was the first in. He's already out of sight. And then Perrin and Matt followed behind Rand at spaced intervals. And he doesn't look back to check on them. There's not supposed to be anything that really connects them. Just five men showing up in Falma in early hour, but not together. The horse lots kind of start surrounding him. And, you know, the horses crowding fences, waiting to be fed. And Huron pops his head out between two stables, their doors still closed and barred, but sees Rand and motions to him before popping back in. So Rand turns the base stallion that way. Uh, Huron, you know, holding his horse by the reins, just had one of the long vests instead of his coat, and despite the heavy cloak that hides his short sword and sword breaker, he shivered from the cold, and he's like, well... Lord Ingtar's back there, and he says we'll leave the horses here and go the rest of the way on foot. 
So Rand dismounts, and he's like, oh, and Fane went down the street, Lord Rand. I can almost smell it from here. So Rand leads Red down the way where Ingtar had already put his horse and such in the stable. And the Shiner didn't look very much like a lord in a dirty fleece coat with holes worn to the leather in multiple places, and his sword looked very odd belted over it. But his eyes were feverishly intense. But Rand just ties Rand up next to Ingtar's stallion, and he hesitates over his saddlebags. He had not been able to leave the banner behind. He didn't think that the soldiers would have gone over his bags, but he did not know the same for Varen, and it couldn't predict what she would do if she found the banner. But it makes him a little uneasy, and he decides to leave the saddlebags, you know, tied to his saddle. So Matt joins them, and a few minutes later, Hiran comes in with Perrin. Matt, wearing his baggy trousers stuffed at the top of his boots. Perrin, his too-short cloak. Rand thought they all looked like villainous beggars, but they all have passed largely unnoticed in the villages. Angtar's like, okay, let us see what we see. So they stroll out into the dirt street as if they had no particular destination in mind, talking among themselves and ambled past the wagon yards and sloping cobblestone streets. You know, usual town get-up. Rand's not so sure what he thinks about himself and everyone else, but Ingtar's plan had been for them to look like any other group of men walking together, but they were all, there were too few people out of doors, and five men made a crowd when it's that empty outside. So they walked in a bunch, and it was Huron who led them, you know, sniffing the air and turning down the street and that, and, you know, when he turned, they did too, and like they had all intended to do it anyway. And Huron's like, well, sheesh, veins crisscrossed all over the town. It smells everywhere, and it stinks. It's hard to tell the old from new. At least I know he's still here. Some of it cannot be more than in a day or two. I'm definitely sure about that. But he seems less and less doubtful the further they go. So more and more people begin to appear, and then there's a fr fruit peddler setting up his wares, and somebody carrying a bunch of parchments under his arm, and all of these different people going at it, and you can... <laughs> all this set up for the morning market. But they also pass two women heading the other way, one with a downcast eyes and a silver collar on her neck, and the other in a dress worked with lightning bolts holding a coiled silver leash. And Rand's breath catches, and he tries not to look back at them, and Matt's like, was that... was that a Damani? And Ingtar's like, that is what they described. Here, and are we going to walk over every street in the shadowed, cursed town? Huron's like, well, he's been everywhere. His stench is everywhere. If he'd come to an area where the stone houses were three or four stories high, as big as inns, just these freaking monstrosity of buildings. And he's apparently Fane's been in all these places. So they head around a corner, and Rand's taken aback by the sight of a score of Shanshan standing guard in front of a big house on one side of the street. And by the sight of two women in lightning mark dresses talking on the doorsteps of another across from it. A banner flaps in the wind over the house the soldiers are protecting, and it's a golden hawk clutching lightning bolts. Nothing marked out the house, and well, the women talked really except themselves, but the officer's armor was very resplendent in red and black and gold, and his helmet gilded and painted to look like a spider's head. When Rand sees the two big leathery skin shapes crouched among the soldiers, he kind of missed a step. Grolm. There was no mistaking those wedge-shaped heads with their three eyes. He's like, it can't be. He's like, maybe you think I'm asleep in the dream. He's like, wait, wait, maybe we haven't even actually left for Falma yet. But the others stare at the beasts as they walk past the guarded house. It's like Matt's like, what in the name of light are they? And Huron's like, Lord Rand, they're, those are. And he's like, it doesn't matter. And then Huron nods. Ingtar's like, we're here for the horn, not to stare at Shan Shan monsters. Concentrate on finding Fane, Huron. So the soldiers barely glance at them, and the street runs straight down to the round harbor. Rand can see ships anchored down there, tall, square-looking ships with high masts, small in that distance. Well, he's been here a lot, said Huron, you know, sort of scrubbing his nose with the back of his hand. And he's like, oh, it strings with layer and layer of him. I think he might have been here as late as yesterday, Lord Ingtar, maybe last night. And Matt suddenly clutches his coat with both hands. He's like, oh, 
It's it's in there, whispering to them. He turns around and walks backwards, peering at the tall house. He's like, the dagger's in there. I didn't even notice it before because of those those things, but I can feel it. And Perrin pokes a finger in his ribs. It's like, well, stop gawking at it before they start wondering why you're goggling at them like a fool. Saran glances over his shoulder and the officer is looking at them. So Matt turns around and he's like, are we just going to keep walking? It's in there. Ingtar's like, the horn is what we are after. And I mean to find Fane and make him tell me where it is, but he doesn't stop slowing down. So Matt doesn't do anything, but his face is a whole plea. And Rand's thinking, well, I have to find Fane too. But then he looks at Matt's face and like, well, Ingtar, if the dagger's in that house, Fane's probably in there too. And I can't see him letting the dagger or the horn out of his sight. So Ingtar stops and he's like, well, it could be, but we will never know from out here. Rand's like, well, we could watch for him to come out. If he comes out this time in the morning, he probably spent the night there. And I'll wager where he sleeps, wherever the horn is. And if he comes out, we can go back to Varen midday and have a plan made by nightfall. He's like, I don't mean to wait for Varen. That's coming from Ingtar. And I won't wait for night either. I've waited too long already. I mean to have the horn in my hands before the sun sets again. And he's like, but we don't know Ingtar. And Matt's like, well, I know the dagger's in there. Um, and Ingtar goes back and like, and Huron says Fane was here last night. It's the first time you've been willing to say anything closer than a day or two. We're going to take back the horn now. And Rand's like, okay, how are we going to do that? But the officer's no longer watching them, but there are all at least 20 soldiers in front of the building. And a pair of Grolm. <laughs> no big deal. It's like, there can't be Grolm here. But thinking about it didn't make the beast disappear. And there seems to be gardens around all these houses. Ingtar thinking thoughtfully. It's like, well, if one of those... Alleys runs by a garden wall. Sometimes men are so busy guarding their front, they neglect their back. Let's go. This kind of seems like a really, really cheesy way to do it, but the way the Shanshin operate, it actually makes sense. Funny enough. It it seems like the easiest way you could, like, force a story or something, but it, it like, legitimately how the Shanshan react to things and how they deal with incidences, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> so... They're like, all right, let's go. So Rand looks at Perrin and he just kind of shrugs and they follow as well. And the alley is barely wider than their shoulders. But it runs between the high garden walls and it crosses another alley big enough to for a push barrow or a small cart. And it's a bit cobblestone too, but the backs of the buildings look down on it and they had shuttered windows and expanses of stone and they're trying to be careful not to be spotted. But Ingtar leads them along the alley until they were at the opposite of the waving banner. And he takes off his or takes his steel back gauntlets from under his coat, puts them on, and leaped up to catch the top of the wall, pulls himself up to peek over. And he's like in a low voice, he's like, Trees, flower beds, walks. There's no soul to be wait, there's a guard. One man. If he he isn't even wearing his helmet. Count to fifty, follow me. So he swings his boot to the top of the wall and rolls over inside. And Rand doesn't have a chime to even say a word. Matt begins to count slowly. Rand holds his breath. Perrin fingers his axe. Huron gripping the hilt of his weapon. And there's 50, and then Huron scrambles up and over the wall before the word was out of Matt's mouth. Perrin went right next to him. Rand thought Matt might need some help. He looked pale and drawn, but he gave no sign as he scrambled up. Stonewall had plenty of handholds, and moments later, Rand was crouched on the inside with Matt and Perrin and Huron. The garden was in the middle of kind of a deep autumn look. The flower beds empty except for a couple shrubs here and there and trees. Um, they could still spot the banner on the front. But for a moment, Rand can't see Ingtar. But then he sees him flat against the back of the wall of the house, motioning them on with the sword in his hand. So Rand runs in a crouch, more conscious of the windows blankly peering down the house than his friends running beside him. And he finds it a relief to press himself against the house beside Ingtar. And Matt's like, it's in there, I can feel it. And he's like, Rand asks Ingtar like, where the guard is, and he's like, oh, he's dead. The man was overconfident. He never even tried to raise a cry. I hit his body under one of those bushes. Rand stares at him. The Shan Shan was overconfident? <laughs> but the only thing that kept it from going uh, back right there was Matt's anguished murmurs. 
Tintar's like, okay, we're almost there. Almost there. Let's go. Saran draws his sword as they start back up the steps. He's aware of Huron unlimbering his short sword and his uh, sword breaker. And Perrin pulls his axe from his loop reluctantly. And inside the hallway is a bit narrow. Half open door to the right. It smells kind of like a kitchen. And people are moving about, you know, just voices clattering pod lids and, you know, the usual stuff in the morning. So they, Ingtar's like, hey, Matt, take the lead. And they crept by the door and they watched the narrow opening until they were around the next corner. And they see a slender young woman with dark hair coming out of the door ahead of them, carrying a tray with one cup. They all freeze. She turns the other way without even looking in their direction. So Rand's eyes widen because her long white robes was all but transparent and she vanished around in a corner. Matt's like, did you see that? You could see right through. Ingtar claps a hand over Matt's mouth and whispered, keep your mind on why we are here. Now find it. Find the horn for me. So Matt pointed at a narrow set of winding stairs and they climbed a flight and he led them toward the front of the house. The furnishings in the hallway were sparse, but all seemed curves. Here and there was a tapestry hanging on the wall. Folding screen stood against it, each painted with a few birds and branches and flowers or two. And a river flowed across one screen. Aside from the rippling water and narrow strips of the riverbank, the rest of it was blank. But all around, Rand could hear the sounds of people sitting or stirring, slippers scuffing on the floor, soft murmurs of speech. But he didn't see anybody. And so Matt is like, hey, it's in there, at least the dagger, pointing to a big pair of sliding doors. And Ingtar looks at Huron. The sniffer slides the doors open. And Ingtar leaps through with his sword ready, but there's no one there. Ren and the others heard inside. Huron quickly closed the doors behind them. And the painted screens on the walls and other doors and everything had be overlooked the street. And at one end of the big room stood a tall circular cabinet. And at the other was a small table, the lone chair on the carpet turned to face it. Rand hears Ingtar gasp, but he only felt like heaving a sigh of relief. There lay the curling golden horn of Valir, just sitting on the stand on this table. Below it, the ruby and the hilt of the ornate dagger caught the light. So Matt darts to the table, snatching the horn and dagger. He's like, we have it. We have both of them. Parents like, not so loud. We don't have them out of the yet. And his hands are busy, you know, on the half of his axe. They seem to be want to hold something else. And Ingtar's like, the horn of Valir. There's a such awe. And he touches the horn hesitantly, tracing a finger along the silver script. And he's like, it is. By the light, it is. I'm saved. And Huron was moving the screens that hid the windows. And he shoved the last out of his way and peered at the street below. And he's like, well, the soldiers are still out there. It looks like they've taken root. And those other things, too, referring to the Grolm. Ran went to join him, and there's two beasts for Grolem, and he's like, how did they? And he lifts his eyes from the street. Words died. He looks across the wall garden of the big house on the other side of the street, and there's other gardens and stuff across from it. Women sat on benches and strolled across the walks in pairs. Women linked neck to wrist by silver leashes. One of the women with a collar around her neck looked up, and he was too far to make out her face clearly, but for an instant it seemed that her eyes met, and he knew, and blood drains from his face. Egwene! Matt's like, what are you talking about? Egwene's in Tarvalin. Safe. I mean, I wish I was there. And Rand's like, she's here. And the two women were turning, walking towards one of the buildings on the far side of the garden. She's like, she's here. She's right across the street. Oh, light. She's wearing one of those collars. And Perrin's like, are you sure? And he keeps to peer over the windows. Like, I don't see her, Rand, and I I could recognize her if I did, even at this distance. And Rand's like, I'm sure. He's like, she's supposed to be safe and in the White Tower. It's like, I have to get her. The rest of you. And you hear it. So! The slurring voice was as soft as the sound of the door sliding in the tracks. You are not what I expected. <laughs> the first thing that pops in my head is, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! <laughs> uh, but... A brief moment, Rand just stares, and there's this tall man with a shaven head who had stepped into the room, a long trailing blue robe, and his fingernails are so long that Rand wondered he could hold anything. 
two men standing obliquely behind him had the dark half of their dark hair shaved, the rest hanging in dark braids down each one man's right cheek. One of them cradled a sheathed sword in his arms. And it was only for a moment he had just staring. The screens toppled the reveal at either end of the room, a doorway crowded with four or five Shan Shan soldiers, bareheaded but armored and swords in hand. And the guy holding the swords like he were in the presence of the High Lord Turak. And stares at Rand and the others angrily, but a brief motion of finger from the blue lacquered nail cut him short. The other servant stepped forward with a bow and began undoing Turak's robe. And the shaven head man's like, when one of my guards was found dead, I suspected the man who called himself Fane. I have been suspicious of him since Huan died so mysteriously, and he had always wanted that dagger. He held out his arms for the servant to remove his robe. Despite his soft, almost singing voice, hard muscles roped his arms and smooth chest. The guy may be a lord, but he doesn't shirk his uh, conditioned body, or lack, I should say. He doesn't shirk conditioning his body. And he just sounds kind of uninterested, indifferent to the blades in their hand. He's like, and now to find strangers with not only the dagger, but the horn. It will please me to kill one or two of you for disturbing my morning. Those who survive will tell me who you are and why you came. And he stretches out a hand without looking, and the man with the scabbarded sword laid the hilt in his hand, and he drew a heavy curved blade. He's like, I would not have the horn damaged. Turek gave no other signal, but one of the soldiers stalked in the room and reached for the horn. And Rand's thinking, like, I, should I be crying or laughing? Because he wore armor, but the arrogant face seemed oblivious to their weapons as Turak was. Now I'm going to read this part because it's it's just like a short paragraph or so, but it <laughs> it's when it gets a little exciting. It starts the uh, excitement, I should say. Matt putting into it. As the Shan Shan reached out his hand, Matt slashed it with the ruby-hilted dagger. With a curse, the soldier leaped back, looking surprised. And then he screamed. It chilled the room, held everyone where they stood in astonishment. The trembling hand he held up in front of his face was turning black, darkness creeping outwards from the bleeding gash that had crossed his palm. He opened his mouth wide and howled, clawing at his arm, then his shoulder. Kicking, jerking, he toppled to the floor thrashing on the silken carpet, shrieking as his face grew black and his dark eyes bulged like overripe plums until a dark, swollen tongue gagged him. He twitched, choking raggedly, heels drumming, and he did not move again. Every bit of his exposed flesh was black as putrid pitch and looked ready to burst at a touch. <laughs> I mean, the entire concept that he's like, moves forward and... Matt's like, uh, no. And he's like, oh, I'm surprised. Like, you're surprised someone defended themselves? I mean, if you showed up, put, like, swords to them, force them to drop their weapons or something, or say, hey, drop your weapons. That's one thing. But they didn't even do that. He's just like, I'm just going to go up and grab it because no one's going to ever think to stab me. So Matt licks his lips and swallows, and his grip shifts uneasily on the dagger. But even Turok just stares open-mouthed. Inktar's like, well, you see... We are no easy meat. Suddenly, he leaps over the corpse toward the soldiers, still goggling what had left the man, who was one of their comrades, and stood shoulder to shoulder only moments before. He says, Shinoa, follow me! And Huron leaps after him, and the soldiers fell back before them, the sounds of steel on steel rising. The Shanshan at the other end of the room started forward as Ingtar moved, but they were then falling back too before Matt's thrusting dagger, even more than from axe that parents swung with the wordless snarls. And in the space of heartbeats, Rand stood alone, facing Turak, who held his blade upright before him. His moment of shock was gone. His eyes were sharp on Rand's face. The black and swollen body of one of his soldiers might as well have not existed. It did not seem to exist for the two servants, either. Any more than Rand and his sword existed. Or the sounds of fighting, fading now from the rooms to either side of the house. The servants had begun calmly folding Turak's robe as soon as the hard lord... High Lord took his sword. 
and not looked up even for the dead soldier's shrieks. Now they knelt beside the door and watched with impassive eyes. And Turek's like, well, I suspected it might come to you and me. And he, he spun his blade easily, in full circles one way and then the other, and his long-nailed fingers moving delicately on the hilt. His fingernails didn't seem to hamper him at all. You are young. Let us see what is required to earn the heron on this side of the ocean. But then Rand notices, you know, standing tall on Tarak's blade was a heron. With the little training he had, he was face to face with a real blade master. So hastily he tosses the fleece-lined cloak aside, riddling himself of weight and encumbrance. But Turok just waits. Rand desperately wanted to seek the void, but it was plain he would need every shred of his ability he could muster, and even then his chances to leave the room alive would be small. But he had to leave alive. Egwene was almost close enough for him to shout out to her, and he had to free her somehow. But Sidene waited in the void. The thought made his heart leap with eagerness. At the same time, it turned his stomach. But just as close as Egwene were those other women, Demane. If he had touched Sidene, if he could not help himself and stop himself from channeling, they would know. And Varen had told him, no one wonder. Now, personally, I think this might have been a little bit of a misunderstanding, just due to the nature of how long it's been since women really dealt with men who could channel to the point where they could sit there and study whether or not they felt them or not. Um, it's a point of a contention. I don't... Other things in the story makes me believe they don't have the ability to tell he's channeling. But it's at least a claim that Rand believes that Varen said. Um, and Varen might very well believe it, but I don't know if Varen actually has uh, seen it himself or seen it herself, felt it or whatever. He's like, well, so many are so close, but he might survive Tarak only to die facing Demane, and he could not die before Grain was free. So Rand raises his blade. Tarak glides towards him in a silent feat, and then blade rang on blade like hammer on anvil. But at the beginning, it's very clear that the man was testing him, pushing only hard enough to see what he could do, then pushing a little harder and just a little harder. And it was basically Rand's quick wrists and quick feet that kept him alive, as much as skill. Without the void, he was always half a heartbeat behind. The tip of Tarak's heavy sword made a stinging trench just under his left eye, and the flat of his coat sleeve hung away from his shoulder, the darker being wet under a neat slash beneath his right arm, precise as the tailor's cut. He could feel warm dampness spreading down his ribs. And there's disappointment on the High Lord's face. And he stepped back with a gesture of disgust. And it's like, where did you find that blade, boy? Or do they truly award the heron to those no more skilled than you? No matter. Make your peace. It is time to die. He came on again. But the void envelops Rand. Sidene flowed towards him, glowing with the promise of the One Power, but he ignores it. It was no more difficult than ignoring a barbed thorn twisting in his flesh. He refused to be filled with the power, refused to be one with the male half of the true source. He was one with the sword in his hands, one with the floor beneath his feet, one with the walls, one with Tarak. He recognized the forms the High Lord used. They were a little different from what he had been taught, but not enough. Now, I like this part because it shows a lot of sword forms in the next cupping paragraph, so bear with me. The swallow takes flight meets parting the silk. Moon on the water meets the wood, the wood grouse dances. Ribbon in the air meets stone falling from the cliff. And you can kind of guess based off the imagery of what the kind of attack is, which is one of the reasons I like how he did these sword forms. But they kind of move around the room in a dance and their music was steel against steel. Disappointment and disgust fades from Tarak's dark eyes, replaced by surprise and concentration. Sweat appeared on his face as he pressed Rand harder. Lightning of the three prongs meets leaf on the breeze. Rand's thoughts float outside the void, apart from himself, hardly noticing, but it wasn't enough. He faced a blade master, and with the void and every ounce of his skill, he was barely managed to hold his own. Barely. He had to end it before Turok finally did. He's like, Sidene? No. Sometimes it's necessary to sheathe the sword in your own flesh, but that would not help Egwene either. He had to end it. Now. 
Tarak's eyes widened as Rand glided forward. So far, he'd only been defending. Now he attacked. All out. The boar rushes down the mountain. Every movement of his blade was an attempt to reach the High Lord. Now all Tarak could do was retreat and defend, down the length of the room, almost to the door. In an instant, while Tarak still tried to face the boar, Rand charged. The river undercuts the bank. He dropped to one knee, blade slashing across. He did not need Tarak's gasp or the feel of resistance to cut his, of his cut to know. He heard two thumps and turned his head, knowing what he would see. He looked down the length of his blade, wet and red, where the High Lord lay. Sword tumbled from his lipped hand, a dark dampness shining the birds woven on the carpet under his body. Tarak's eyes were still open, but already filmed with death. The void shook. He had faced Trollocs in an even shadow spawn, but he had never confronted a human being with a sword except in practice or bluff. And the thought pops in his head. I just killed a man. Sidine tries to fill him. Desperately, he clawed free, breathing hard as he looked around, and he gave a start when he saw the other two servants were kneeling beside the door. He had forgotten about them. Neither man apparently armed, but all they had to do was shout. They never looked at him or at each other. Instead, they stared silently at the High Lord's body. They produced daggers from their robes, and he tightened his grip on his sword, but each man placed the point to his own breast. From birth to death, they intoned in unison, I serve the blood, and plunged the daggers into their own hearts. They folded forward almost peacefully, heads to the floors of bowing deeply to their lord. Now, this is something I try to add when people talk about the Shan Chan, because I know the Shan Chan get a lot of hate for a lot of things. Some of them rightfully so, some of them, depending on how you look at it. This is the culture of the Shan Shan. It's essentially blind obedience in every way possible. Like, those in charge deserve to be obeyed, and you are assigned a position to someone, and you do everything they say without question. This side of the world, and this continent, they don't understand that. Like, they might obey orders, this, that, or the other, here and there, like for military men or servants, but not to the extremity that the Shan Shan take. And the reason the Shan Shan are extremely effective, yeah, there's Damani, yeah, they have Grom, they have other, like Lopar and other types of monsters and stuff, animals, I should say, and monsters is a word you use, you don't know what it is. Um, but the ultimate thing that gets them to win is their blatant following of orders despite anything like this is the thing where like you will serve this person literally from the moment they're born to the, or moment you're born to the moment your lord dies so it's like beginning to end and it's not completely uncommon even in real life cultures um but this is something that it is commonly seen as a mad concept. Like, oh, this is crazy. And that's what Rand thinks. Like, this is mad. I maybe go mad. They already were. So Rand gets to his feet shakily, and the others came running back in, and they all had nicks and cuts. And um, Ingtar's coat was staying in more than one place. Matt still had the horn and dagger, but his blade darker than the ruby and a hilt. And Perrin's axe is red too, but he looked like he might be sick at any moment. And then Inktar's like, you dealt with them? Well, then we're done. If no alarm is given, the fools never cried for help. I'm thinking, like, you think the scream of a dying person turning black and everything would probably give off some alarms. Maybe some steel clashing on steel, like a hammer and anvil, because a hammer and anvil, you could hear across the town. <clears throat> Something of here has to possibly have given away, but nothing apparently has. Huron goes and checks to see if the guards heard anything. And Matt's like, Rand, these people are crazy. <laughs> and this is an important line for Matt to tuck it away for later. You'll understand eventually why it's ironic. Um, he's like, I know I said that before, but these people really are. Those servants? He's like, when they saw us fighting, they just fell on their face, put their faces to the floor? Or fell on their knees, put their faces to the floor, wrapped their arms around their heads? They never moved, cried out, even tried to help the soldiers or give alarm. They just, they're probably still there as far as I know. 
again, this is a cultural clash of awareness. They're not sure what's going on. And Ingtar's like, well, I wouldn't count them on staying on their knees. We're leaving as fast as we can run. And Rand's like, you go, Egwene. And Ingtar's like, you fool. We've come what we, we have what we came for. The Horn of Valyr, the hope of salvation. What can one girl count, even if you love her, alongside the horn and what it stands for? And Rand's like, the Dark One can have the horn for all I care. What does finding the horn count if I abandon Egwene to this? If I did that, the horn couldn't save me. The creator couldn't save me. I would damn myself. Inkter just stares at him, his face being unreadable. He's like, you mean that exactly, don't you? Huron's like, something's happening out there. A man just came running up and they're all milling like fish in a bucket. Wait, the officer's coming inside. Inkter's like, go. He tries to take the horn, but Matt was already running. Ren hesitated, but Inktar grabbed his arm and pulled him to the hall. And the others streaming after Matt, Perrin only gave Rand one pained look before he went. You cannot save the girl if you stand here and die. So he runs with them. Part of him hated himself for running, but another part whispered, I'll come back. I'll free her somehow. By the time they reached the bottom of the narrow winding staircase, he could hear a man's deep voice raised in front of the part of the house, angrily demanding that someone stand up and speak. A serving girl in a nearly transparent robe knelt at the bottom of the stairs, and a gray-haired woman all in white wool with a long, flowery apron knelt by the kitchen door. They were both exactly as Matt described, faces to the floor, arms wrapped around their heads. They did not stir a hair as Rand and the others hurried by, and he was relieved to see the emotions of, breath the emotions of breathing. So they cross the garden at a dead run, climb over the back wall rapidly. Ingtar curses when Matt tosses the horn of Valyr ahead of him, and tried again to take it when he dropped it outside, but Matt snatched it up with a quick, it wasn't even scratched, and scampered up the alleyway. More shouts rose from the house they had just left. A woman screamed, and someone began toiling a gong. And Rand's last thoughts, as he sped after the others, was, I will come back for her, somehow. Whew! I don't think we've had a long chapter like this for quite some time. <laughs> They've had a couple, like, six-page six chapters. This is like 11 pages or something. It was ridiculously long. But that ending of that chapter was great. We learned quite a bit. I don't know if you guys caught up on the uh, the whole Soldom being collared thing. Um, there could be some... much divisive consequences to that if it gets out just saying um it's kind of a big deal and it changes the game completely for how things happen with that but i'll leave that there because we'll explore that later on in the series um i don't want to ruin everything now but oh those fight scenes were great um i'd love to see that in a maybe like some professional blade masters or something imitating them and see like maybe maybe they can replicate it screen by screen maybe even dress up as rand and high lord Tarak and just see them flow in that dance that would be just so cool to watch um maybe some side notes being like, this is this move, this is this move, and then like let you see it, because combat usually is a little faster, so you, you'd be like flying through moves quickly. I should say flowing. But yeah, it was it was definitely a fun chapter. Um, I don't think by any means it's the only uh, long one coming up. There might be an, another couple ones showing up that'll be longer too. But yeah, I, I had fun, so... Hopefully you guys enjoyed the chapter. Um, if you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns or anything, feel free to uh, reach out to me at talesofredarm at gmail.com or if you want to reach out on Facebook, just Tales of a Red Arm or on Twitter at talesofredarm.com or <laughs> not talesofredarm.com, Tales of a Red Arm. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, you can just let me know what you guys think. If you're enjoying stuff, if you want some more content that you don't think I'm giving you, I mean, it's a lot of content as it is, but yeah, I'd love to hear from you guys. Um, 
I love hearing some positive things saying, Hey, love what you're doing. It's great. It means a lot to me. Um, but I also like hearing if you guys think something's incorrect or you want to help me bring out the context a little bit more accurately. I'm always down for that. So thanks to everybody who hung out and listened through it. And I really, 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 really hope we can get these next couple chapters. We're a couple weeks away from being completely done. <laughs> One of these days I need to go through each of the glossaries and just read everything, but that's going to be quite the painful excursion <laughs> because they're long. But yeah, thanks everybody for hanging out. Um, next time we'll have chapter 46 and it's, it's going to be probably a bit of emotional ride. Um, so <laughs> hopefully you guys join me for that next time. And we'll just <laughs> go off the cliff, I guess, at this, the end of this uh, book here as we're going the next, next couple weeks. So thanks everybody for coming out. Look forward to seeing you guys all again. Until then. We drink all night and dance all day And on the girls will spend our pay And when we're done then we'll await To dance with Jack of the Shadows We'll toss the dice however they fall And struggle the girls be they short or tall And follow young Matt wherever he goes To dance with Jack of the Shadows We'll toss the dice however they fall And struggle the girls be they short or tall Then follow Lord Matt wherever he calls To dance with Jack of the Shadows We'll give a yell with a bloody curse And hug the maids it could be worse Let's ride away with the dark woods first To dance with Jack of the Shadows yeah. 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 Yeah.